You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 1st of October 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. What happened to the confidence and ideals of the European dream? The EU was set up to protect freedom. It was the Soviet Union that stopped people leaving. This makes no sense at all, but the UK's Foreign Secretary said it anyway. My guests Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion will be discussing the Conservative Party conference along with the day's other top stories, including the replacement for NAFTA has much changed but the name, China's decision to stand up the United States Defence Secretary, what happens if Beijing and Washington really stop speaking to each other, and the Australian Zoo, which has decided that modern fruit literally isn't fit for animals. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Isabel Hilton, editor of China Dialogue, and Michael Binion, foreign affairs specialist with The Times. Welcome both. And we will start in the Americas, where the United States, Canada and Mexico have a new framework governing trade between the three. Out is going the North American Free Trade Agreement, or NAFTA. In is coming the United States-Mexico-Canada Agreement, or USMCA. Is it more satisfying an agreement than it is an acronym? And even though US President Donald Trump has described it as wonderful, is it nevertheless a good thing? Uh, Michael, first of all, you are literally just back from Canada. Canada, Canada yes, Canada. Toronto. Canada. Why, did I, why was I putting a y in the middle of Canada? <laughs> Canada, it's definitely pronounced Canada. Uh, were they dancing in the streets in anticipation of Uzumka? I don't think they even knew it was going to happen. I don't don't think there was the slightest interest in it. I was at a business conference, and that hardly came up at all. Uh, What they do find is that it's very difficult dealing with Donald Trump, and I think they've quite cleverly worked out that if they say, great idea, invented by Donald Trump, let's support it, then they'll get more or less what they had before, which is, I think, what they're going to have. There are some tweaks to the old agreement. Uh, Certainly, the Americans have better access to the Canadian dairy market, for example, There's a different arrangement about lumber. But essentially, they are recreating something that's been there, a trade agreement, for some years. But Donald Trump can say, I've done it, and it's better, and I'm fulfilling my policies. Uh, Isabel, is it, as far as we understand it, such a change between NAFTA and Uzumka? I'm not going to get bored of saying Uzumka. It's it's pretty bad. Um, Is it such a change, though, that a name change is actually merited, or are there just a few minor tweaks? I mean, would anybody have objected if this was just called NAFTA? No, the only person who would have objected is Donald Trump, who's been lambasting NAFTA for years and kind of up and down the stump. Uh, He's been saying it was the worst deal ever. So now he can say, look, I tore it up and here's this wonderful new shiny thing. It's, as Michael says, there are some changes. Uh, they're not huge. Um, a little bit more on, on access to the Canadian dairy market. Uh, some new rules about or some enhanced percentage on on the, the, the car parts that have to be made either, you know, in Mexico, Canada or the United States. And some, curiously enough, um, the, the rights of Mexican workers for free collective bargaining and and um, minimum wages. So that, you know, will be good for Mexican workers. And that means that the Democrats and the unions supported it. So it's a 
it's a crowd pleaser without being a huge game changer. I think he's hit a number of constituencies that will be relatively satisfied. Um, and what Canada didn't get was the lifting of the tariffs on steel, which I'm sure they will continue to press for. It, it, it has just occurred to me that you can rearrange the letters so they spell mucus. But it, but it, but it, but it, but it, well, apparently he was thinking of calling it uh, the, uh, the the something about the Marine... He wanted to call it USMC because it was United States Marine Corps and he thought it would be a, a handy tri- tribute. Did the US Marine Corps object that we've already using that acronym. <laughs> I, I think everyone just thought it was such a barking idea that it died. <laughs> it's rather interesting that uh, Donald Trump has been sort of nudged and cajoled into doing something that's reasonably sensible. Yeah. And the officials do seem to have actually controlled his instinct to just tear everything up and scrap it all and say, well, why don't you have a new trade deal? And this is just as good. And or equally interesting is that he's been very pally with Justin Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, to whom he was deeply insulting only six months ago. Uh, and, uh, I mean, Trudeau has sort of swallowed his pride and said, yeah, yeah, fine, you know, we're all friends now. It looks as though that's the way to deal with Trump, just to sort of let him have his little rant and have his say and then let the officials try to nudge him into a more sensible policy. I mean, th- th- that analysis by you both is reminding me at this point of an editor I worked for many years ago. I cannot stress enough that it is nobody in this building or indeed this country, but I, I eventually realised that that the way to the way to deal with their suggested edits was just to agree earnestly with every one of their idiotic ideas, uh, thank them profusely for their input into improving my copy absolutely no end and then resubmitting what I'd submitted in the first place, which would then be ushered straight into print. There are those people, Isabel, do we think Donald Trump is among them who just likes to feel like they've accomplished something, whether they have or not? I think I think that, you know, the art of Trump wrangling is, you know, developing fast. And now that this, that Azumka is his, um, you can bet he'll defend it against all comers. Yes. So, you know, this is going to be a fairly um, stable arrangement, which I'm, I'm sure will be very welcome in Mexico and Canada. Uh, and it is going to provide the rest of us with considerable amusement as we watch Donald Trump trying to actually say uh, <laughs> Uzumka out loud. He, he, he struggles enough with actual words. I mean, but, but all that, uh, Michael, if we, if we try and sort of apply a credit where it's due analysis to it, is this, even if the name change that name again, Uzumka, is not necessarily justified, is this actually on balance a better deal than NAFTA? Hard to tell. Um, It's certainly a deal that sort of updates NAFTA to a certain extent. And I think the Americans did feel rather sore that the the Mexicans in particular were taking advantage of this, particularly with mass production of cars and things of this kind where they would um, take over American jobs. Now, I don't think you can uh, negotiate a trade deal that uh, apportions how much work should be done here and how much should be done there. Any trade deal that allows the free flow of trade is better than no trade deal. Uh, but simply updating the terms of NAFTA is probably no bad thing. I'm not enough. I'm not familiar enough with all the details because all these tra- trade deals are really driven by percentages of this or percentages of that and particular advantage in this sector or that sector. It's extremely complicated. Uh, And therefore, to outsiders who are not familiar with the figures, the overall thing looks on balance okay or better or a little bit better, but the actual trade effect is hard to tell in advance. One of the things that did need updating and has been updated are are the rules on IP protection, which um, I think have needed to be refreshed since NAFTA was first signed. 
And one victory for Mexico and Canada was that uh, so-called Chapter 11, which was which allowed big corporations to fight decisions made by governments, which they argued went against their interest, has been abolished. And that was widely regarded as giving license to big US corporations uh, to bully governments uh, with the backing of the United States. So that is quite a substantial mm. victory, I think. Okay, well, let's move along slightly, because while the United States seems to be friends again with Canada and Mexico, at least for the moment, the United States seems to be increasingly not friends anymore with China. Already miffed by being on the receiving end of Donald Trump's chaotic trade war and possibly unnerved, as were we all, by Trump's declarations of affection for North Korean tyrant Kim Jong-un, China has now cancelled a security meeting with US Secretary of State for Defence James Mattis, which had been planned for October. China's Foreign Minister Mr. Wang Yi said there was no cause for panic, which often throughout human history has been something people have said shortly before there was cause for panic. Uh, Isabel, is there cause for panic? I wouldn't panic just yet. <laughs> uh, I think there was a you know, fairly predictable chess move. The Chinese are very cross about a couple of things. One is sanctions against the Chinese military for an arms purchase from Russia. Uh, which fell under the uh, sanctions against Russia. This was this purchase of Sukhoi fighter planes. Absolutely. So it was a kind of separate. It's it's backwash from a, from if you like a separate argument that the U.S. is having. And the second one was a relatively small um, arms sale to Taiwan, uh, which is you know the scene of ritual protest from from China uh, whenever arms go to Taiwan. Um, but I so you know they're, they're, and they had already refused uh, U.S. warship permission to visit Hong Kong last week. So I think this is just um, you know it, it it sort of rumbles on um, that the trade talks are not happening and and the security talks are not happening. And I th- I think the Chinese just find Trump fairly impossible to deal with. He undercuts his own representatives, so they are beginning to take the view that there isn't very much point in talking to anyone he sends uh, because. He he undercuts them from Washington or as soon as they come back. So why would you waste your time? Uh, Michael, should this this cancellation prompt garment-rending anguish from James Mattis or is it, as Isabel says, a, a fairly predictable manoeuvre from China that he, he'd probably written this engagement down in pencil? Yes, it's fairly predictable. And I don't think we would have seen a great deal coming out of the talks that Mattis was to have held um, after all, there's only a limited amount of security cooperation that you would see between these two uh, superpowers. I mean, they are effectively the two dominant powers in the world now. I think what we are seeing, though, is a, a sort of slow burn of Chinese anger being lectured to still in patronising tones by Donald Trump. They feel that they still are not appreciated as a power in their own right, certainly by America, uh, alternatively demonised as a threat to global security, and at the other times uh, seen to be someone who is uh, simply taking advantage of easy access to American markets. And they are quite angry about that, and they feel that this is um, it's, it's no place of America to tell them who to buy their arms from, for example, uh, or it's no place of America to tell them about their other uh, interests around the world, investment in Africa or wherever. And I think the, the, this uh, sort of cold shoulder that they're showing is not unexpected and in some ways not necessarily unwelcome. Uh, Isabella, amid that list of reasons that China presently has to be uh, miffed with the United States, how significant would be uh, Donald Trump's recent evidence-free allegation that China was trying to interfere in uh, the midterm elections? 
I, th- I think that w- well, the evidence for that was that China took out an, a two-page ad in a Midwest newspaper, um, you know, to, to I, I can't even remember what it was arguing. It was it was to the effect that um, that China created jobs in the United States that Chinese investment was not a bad thing and China was not a, was not an economic predator um, I don't really think that counts as interfering in elections <laughs> on a Russian scale but but you know well, I guess it's, it's also, in the eye of the beholder it's also not inaccurate presumably it's, in that Chinese investment in the United States does create it jobs it does indeed create jobs and it's also fairly open I think that you know the interference in elections is it, you know anyone is allowed to put their case particularly if they support a struggling US newspaper when they do it. It's when the case is covert um, that, I, that I think th- there has been much more concern. But I think the other, the other context for all of this is the degree to which China and the United States are really shaping up as strategic rivals. You know, if there is no cooperation between these superpowers, then we do have a strategic competition, um, of, you know, of which we are seeing growing signs, which is potentially a dangerous thing. I, I wouldn't panic yet, but I but I can see that there might be a confrontation which neither side can entirely handle, you know, just down the line. So you've got China, which, you know, the the facts on the ground are that the U.S. has been losing influence in China's backyard. China has been asserting itself continuously over the past decade, particularly in places like the South China Sea or in the continuing squeezing of Taiwan, you know, China's... China's, the United States' ally. And and China is kind of saying, we're here, we're big, get used to it, and uh, just make some, make some room here. And the United States doesn't really have an effective answer to that. So you get this, you know, get this exchange of insults, but actually, you know, in terms of facts on the ground or in the sea, in the case of the South China Sea, it's game, set and match so far. To China, uh, Michael. If we if we consider the the broad historical sweep, although of course the historical sweep in this instance isn't that broad, given that the United States and the People's Republic have really only had a diplomatic relationship since the early seventies. Um, how bad are things at the moment? Well, I wouldn't, uh, as I as Isabel said, I wouldn't panic yet. Um, there's still substantial engagement between the two countries, if only in trade. There's still substantial intellectual engagement. Engagement. The number of students from China studying overseas and particularly studying in the United States is enormous. Uh, the um, engagement of China in such things as sort of um, uh, global issues, uh, the environment, uh, things that are negotiated at the United Nations is still substantial. Uh, I don't think China's turning in on itself at all. I think there is the potential for strategic competition across the world. But it isn't necessarily a competition that is sharply focused on confronting the American ideology as it was in the competition between the Soviet Union and the United States. It's not so much an ideological battle. It's a big power struggle for influence and dominance. Well, in a bizarre postmodern twist, it is in a way an ideological battle because you have the Chinese coming out in suits and ties at Davos <laughs> de- defending yes. multilateralism and the global system, and you have Trump stamping his yes. foot and throwing his toys out of the pram. So, in that sense, it is. And and what you've got in Washington at the moment is a very fierce debate, actually, including uh, amongst liberal China watchers about whether engagement has failed and whether it's time for a new form of containment and whether how that 
that translates into policy, if ever this administration gets a coherent policy together, will be quite important. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion. Coming up next, the UK's Conservative Party, Architects of Brexit, gather for their annual conference. Rather disappointingly, it's not in a brewery. Russia is a large and unwieldy beast, but in recent decades it's been tamed by President Vladimir Putin, who's deftly tightened his grip on power. To find more about where Russia finds itself today, from its soft power to its economy, watch our animated nation survey, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. For a global perspective and some fresh ideas direct to your door on business, culture and design, not to mention fashion, travel and much more, subscribe today and join the world of Monocle. As a valued subscriber, you'll get a 10% discount in all Monocle shops and our online store. You'll also be the first to receive exclusive invitations to our events and have full access to the magazine archives. In addition, all one-year subscriptions come with a free limited edition Monocle tote bag. With four bespoke subscription packages to choose from, you decide what suits you and your lifestyle best. What are you waiting for? Visit monocle.com and subscribe today. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. with me are Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion. It's slightly less than six months until the United Kingdom is due to leave the European Union. The organisation which accidentally engineered this occurrence, the Conservative Party, is gathering in Birmingham for its annual conference and its umpteenth attempt to explain to itself and or anyone else who is still listening what Brexit is actually going to look like. In a subplot which will appeal richly to aficionados of irony, one consequence of a referendum which was only called to heal an age-old rift in the Tory party, will be the most obviously divided and rancorous Tory conference since last year's. Um, Michael, first of all, uh, Chris Grayling, the Secretary of State for Transport, for some reason, uh, has today, uh, in terms of trying to rev up uh, the people for Brexit, uh, tried to cite the response to the bankruptcy of Monarch Airlines as a hopeful example. Uh, he his 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 metaphor there rather failed to take into account that Monarch Airlines did not deliberately bankrupt themselves. Uh, yeah, I can't follow that at all. I think he's shunting himself down a dead end track as he often did. Uh, he can't run the railways, <laughs> let alone Brexit. <laughs> an, an appropriate uh, simile you have conjured there, <laughs> metaphor, whatever it was. Yeah, I I think that's. I mean, what they're desperately trying to do is to show that things are under control and that the whole conference is not just about Brexit, which is untrue because that is all, that the only focus that anyone is really going to look at. Uh, uh, the other aspects of government, transport included, are being overlooked. There are very few new ideas coming out about anything much, some things for consumer protection perhaps, but the deep split that is clearly dividing the party and which has occasioned some pretty rancorous talk already, I don't think there's any sign that it's being healed or that the uh, positions of either side are being reconciled. Uh, we, we heard from Dominic Rabb, uh, who is the, he is the Secretary of State for exiting the European Union uh, as we go to air. Uh, he, he made some fairly defiant noises over the weekend, sort of suggesting that, I mean, they, they have reached the point of saying that if, you know, if, if, if the EU doesn't get with the programme, then there will be consequences, which, which is reminding me rather of a key scene of Blazing Saddles, which I, I, I'm not going to quote on air. Um, 
is there part of the Conservative Party, Isabel, still that, that genuinely still thinks in the year of our Lord 2018 that there is the world is basically full of uppity foreigners who do need to get with the programme? Getting Johnny Foreigner in line exactly. is absolutely, uh, I think, a, it seems to be, you know, an indestructible part of the, of the Tory DNA. That and citing Dunkirk at uh, every possible opportunity without seeming to remember that Dunkirk was a defeat. A humiliation um, and a disaster. And the, the finest moment in British history, it would appear, for the last several hundred years. And uh, and it, it comes up as soon as Dunkirk comes up. You just, you should head for the hills. And I think this notion, you know, that, that if, the, if the European Union doesn't fall into line... Or else what? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's just it dot, me of dot, that, dot. Uh, apocryphal you know? headline in a, a tabloid newspaper, you know, 70 or 80 years ago. Fog in channel. <laughs> yeah, continent cut, cut off, off yes. <laughs> um, but it's, you know, it's a sign of kind of lack of, uh, lack of anything, really. And the, the, the slogan of this year's conference is opportunity, which is just this one word which hovers above everybody's head. No doubt everyone hoping it won't crash to the flat floor as, as the banner did last time. Well, exactly. On, on that subject, Michael, we have not yet heard from the Prime Minister, Theresa May. Will she at least be consoling herself that at the risk of tempting fate, her speech cannot possibly go worse? than last year's, during which, of course, she was struck by a massive coughing fit and then the letters on the wall behind her <laughs> uh, right. started yes. falling off. I mean, it, that could only have gone worse if, I mean, various wags with Photoshop on Twitter did sort of point out <laughs> what, what could have happened if some letters had fallen off uh, <laughs> while others stayed up. But nonetheless, it, it can't be as bad as last well, year, Well, I it? think, actually, things could be a, a bit better for her on several fronts. First of all, her main rival and the one that she feared most has been more comprehensively uh, rubbished and denounced than before, namely Boris Johnson, mm -hmm. the former foreign secretary. He has taken himself off as a sort of lone voice, although he has quite a lot of support among the grassroots conservatives. The fact is he has been so disloyal, so challenging to the prime minister, that what he has done is rallied support around her. Uh, the other thing is, her plain blooming resilience. The fact is she's been battered and hit and knocked about the head for a year and she's still there. Uh, and people are beginning to admit a grudging respect for somebody who's either so um, sort of uh, thick-headed or else uh, so kind of obstinate that she can't take hints from anyone else. But at the same time, it shows resilience and determination. And the other thing is that none of her rivals have any clear comprehensive plan of any other negotiating strategy apart from the one that's on the table. Uh, uh, they haven't yet formulated something that's either credible or comprehensive. So she is left with the only strategy available for um, negotiation with the European Union. And she's left as the only leader available in that other people have either ruled themselves out or been seen to be, frankly, unelectable. Uh, Isabel, Boris Johnson, uh, who Michael invokes there, ha has had another one of his ideas uh, leading up to the, the conference. This is for a bridge to, to Northern Ireland, uh, yoking the, the British Isles together. Uh, if you measure that against the another idea suggested by Theresa May, this is going to be a festival of Brexit Britain. Uh, which, which of the two would you say you're more excited by? <laughs> I, actually, I'm more excited by the idea which came up at a festival in Ireland in the summer, uh, 
that we're all the uh, the Brits who've discovered Irish parentage and have become <laughs> Irish citizens could get together for a festival in Ireland. And I think that that's actually going to be more fun and more likely to happen. And I think we're just about double Ireland's population. Indeed. Um, the, the, problem, the problem with all of this is that and I don't disagree with anything Michael said, but it's all about the Tory party. And none of this has any traction whatsoever, it seems to me, uh, in the in the reality which is bearing down on us. And um, I, I can't imagine Theresa May limping on through another Tory conference after this one. So I think she is, you know, pretty fatally wounded. The only reason they're not giving her the coup de grace is that nobody wants to pick up the mess. <laughs> it's just an awful mess. And whatever results from this mess, they want it to be pinned firmly to Theresa May so that whoever comes in can start again and declare victory I of a the, different kind. Uh, uh, that's absolutely true. I think the other important point is that the Tories are left reeling after a very successful Labour Party conference where Labour spin, I mean, there was a whole lot of stuff in the conference that made me think, are they absolutely mad? But the way it was presented meant that madness seemed to make more sense than what the Tories were offering. And a lot of people were quite convinced that Jeremy Corbyn has discovered a new moderate emollient personality and all that sort of thing, made a good speech. Uh, I don't know what measurements are of speeches, but it was deemed a good one. And the Conservatives are on the back foot. And therefore, they're having some problem in gaining public uh, approval. Well, finally tonight uh, to Melbourne, a city presently partially gripped by mourning following Collingwood's last-ditch loss of the AFL Grand Final on Saturday, but mostly suffused by mean-spirited amusement for exactly the same reason. In an unrelated development, Melbourne Zoo has decided to stop feeding its animals fruit, the reason being that modern cultivated fruits have become ever richer in sugar, and this is making the animals fat and rotting their teeth. I'm not making this up. This is this is true. Modern fruit is literally un fit for consumption by zoo animals. Um, Isabel, should we all stop eating filth? Should we all stop eating fruit? If, if chimpanzees and pandas at Melbourne Zoo are no longer eating it, should the rest of us take the hint? Well, this is very alarming news, I have to say. <laughs> I don't intend to give up eating fruit, but I did like the idea that... It's supposed would... to be good for you. Well, indeed. And, and, you know, the government has spent years trying to persuade us to eat five a day and may have to revise their, their view. Um, I, th- I think this is a little over the top. I, uh, couldn't they just cut back on the fruit. The idea that they were going to in, you know, get them to eat more leafy greens instead of bananas doesn't seem to me to be going down very well with the animal population. But I don't know, it, it, is, always, it, it is always a strange thing on a, on a slightly tangential note when you, when you run across animals demonstrating actual opinions and preferences about food. There's always something that strikes me as weird about it. Well, I, I knew somebody who owned a tortoise which would only respond to extremely expensive organic pack choi. <laughs> and, you, and you just think you, this, this is a tortoise. Yeah. It literally has a brain the size of a pea. Yes. How, how is it having opinions about things? That's right. It's like uh, poodles that say, I'm not going to have that kind of pate. I'd rather have this sort. And, and you know, if you pander to them, uh, as it were, uh, using another animal Oof. metaphor. <laughs> uh, no, I think it's absurd. It's frankly absurd. And all these fads are being uh, trotted out one after the other, uh, sometimes pointing to animals as evidence, or it's really because people are saying that uh, we're still eating too much sugar. I mean, if you uh, listen to all the dietary advice, 
we'll end up all the time eating nothing but broccoli, and that would be extremely dull. Well, I, well, I, I'm a big fan of broccoli. I, I, I consider it, in fact, the, the king of vegetables and cruelly underrated. But I, I would not wish to. I, I think, yeah, after three meals a day of broccoli, I could probably get sick of it pretty quickly. There is uh, somewhere in this extremely silly story, Isabel, an actually serious point, which is about sugar. Is is it? And this has been posited. Is is it basically the tobacco of our times? Is this one of these things that fifty years from now people will look back on our relationship to a particular substance and just think, what on earth were these people thinking? Well, I think that's undoubtedly true, but but that's really true about sugar outside fruit, as it were, mm. because fructose, which is the sugar in fruit, um, has very few of the ill effects that sugar, mm. you know, free-range sugar has. Uh, and the sugar It's that, making pandas fat, is it? Well, well, you know, pandas do very little but sit around all day. These are, these are, food, these are red, red pandas. They are, yes, not, I know not, they're not the, the black and white ones, pandas, but, but yeah. even so... Regime for them. But it's the sugar that's added to um, canned food, to processed food, to things. It's the hidden sugar that we mm. consume and the sugar in fizzy drinks. I mean, if honestly, if I had a problem, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't tell people to stop eating fruit. I would tell them to stop consuming fizzy drinks. But presumably, Michael, the, the red pandas and chimpanzees et al. aren't consuming fizzy drinks. So if you're trying to cut back on sugar, what 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 other what are the other options? Well, uh, how about I mean, less fruit? <laughs> yeah, less fruit. Is there any evidence that they are becoming, you know, deranged or, or uh, getting diabetes or, you know, all the ills yeah. that we're getting? They, they were getting fat and it was bad for well, them. Well, well, let them run around in their cages a bit more. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, send them off on a sort of steeplechase. Or release them into Melbourne. <laughs> See how they fare. Yes. <laughs> Funnier things have happened. Um, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Isabel Hilton and Michael Binion, thank you both very much for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Marcus Hippie, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Barbara Maimone. Uh, our studio manager was Christy Evans. More music next at 1900. It's the Monocle Culture Show with Ben Ryland. There's more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. Thank you.